Hello everybody, welcome. I hope the food is good. Oh, okay. So we have to <laughs> we 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 have to thank uh, Janelle for that because it's it's actually Janelle's uh, idea to to order from this place, which is I mean we ordered a couple of times from them, and uh, apparently is is been having a very good reception, which is a good start for a a good a good uh, intellectual event. Um, I'm going to say just a, a couple of words only. Um, this is the beginning, the launching of uh, uh, a long series on climate justice in Latin America that we are organizing at the Center for Latin American Studies with the, the, the partnership of the Merchant Center. Craig is here, and I, I thank you for your... your um, been with us in, on this on this project, and uh, and also um, the Department of Geography, and in this particular case, the very important uh, contribution of the uh, School of Environmental and uh, and Natural Resources. Um, <clears throat> this is this is going to be a series. Um, uh, originally, with this, the idea was to have a symposium a couple of days, two days in Boston. But it was very difficult, very difficult to get the people we wanted to get all these people together. So we decided to split it up and make a series, which I, actually I think is going to be a very good idea. Actually, it's Kendra's idea to, to, to do this. So that's why, that's why Kendra has been unanimously decided to chosen to be, to be the, 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 the the moderator today, the moderator today. So uh, I, I, that's, uh, I, that's, um, that's, uh, I want also to, to say that there is a, a, a very nice group of faculty from Latin American Studies uh, working on this. Uh, Brian Mark, Barbara Piperata, and uh, Joel uh, Wengret, who who's somewhere over there. And, uh, and, and, um, and Christine, Christine Mercer was also over there. And, uh, and also some, some students like, uh, like, uh, like Chris, Chris Herman has been also working. I mean, I mean, this is a, a, a group of people. Probably I'm forgetting some, somebody here. <laughs> so, but but yes, this is uh, this is uh, something that came up originally. The idea came up from the working group on on the, on, on on poverty. Um, uh, this is actually a working group that was few uh, was came up from the fusion of two different groups. So now I forget always forget the the name of the the working group. It's, 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 it's poverty, inequality, and climate justice, right? So uh, originally that was the idea came up from, from the group and uh, then we well been working on this. So I hope to see you in the next event we're going to be having all along the year. And now I uh, will uh, call my colleague uh, Kathy Rokowski, who has been absolutely instrumental in making this particular event realized. And uh, to introduce the two wonderful speakers we have today. Thank you.
Hello, everyone. Ooh, this blocks vision. Okay, so I'm not only going to introduce the speakers to you, um, which basically you've already seen some information on them, etc., but I'm also going to tell you what the format for what is going to happen today is going to follow. So I'll do that first. <clears throat> the first thing that is going to happen is after I introduce the speakers, um, Cornelia Butler Flora will speak for about 35 minutes with her presentation. Um, those of you who may have attended her presentation yesterday at the School of Environment and Natural Resources have had a preview of the project that she's going to be talking about again today. After her 35 minutes speaking, um, there will be a 15-minute period for questions and answers, which will be moderated by Kendra McSweeney. And following that, there will be a 15-minute coffee break. Then we will return to this room, and um, Dr. Stephanie, um, oh my God, Buchler. I was going to put an R in it for some reason. Buchler, known her for years. Um, you guys make me nervous. That's what's going on. Yeah, right. So then Dr. Stephanie Buchler will speak for 35 minutes followed by a 15-minute question and answer, again moderated by, by Dr. Kendra McSweeney. And then we will open it up to general discussion, okay? So um, that's how things will go. And um, forgot to mention this, but I will be holding up a sign that says five minutes left when you hit 30 minutes, okay? So it is my great pleasure to introduce both of our speakers for today. I have known both of them for many, many years. And Cornelia Butler-Flora, as you know, and she's got up here, is um, Charles F. Curtis Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Agriculture and Life Sciences at Iowa State University. Emeritus. Yeah, Emeritus. Emeritus. <laughs> Did you put that? No, you didn't put it. No. <laughs> I got this from your webpage. <laughs> okay, Emeritus. You would not know it for all the traveling and work that she is doing, including meeting with people here at Ohio State who want to get her involved in projects that they're putting together here. So um, Cornelia Flora has worked all around the world, involved in many projects um, and diverse project, projects. She's a rural sociologist. Um, long involved in developing the field of rural sociology. She's a Latin Americanist, and so we often run into each other, as we did last May, at the LASA meetings, and then we have a chance to, to catch up. Wonderful person, and you're going to love her presentation, okay? So Dr. Stephanie um, Buchler is Assistant Research Professor at the Udall Center for Studies in Public Policy in the School of Geography and Development at the University of Arizona. And I met Stephanie many years ago. Um, I believe it was when she was living and working in, in Mexico. We were introduced by a, a colleague of hers, someone that I went to graduate school with. So the world is really a very, very small place. And then subsequent to that, I met her sister when her twin sister applied for a scholarship through the Inter-American Foundation. 
So off and on over the years, we've had a chance for our paths to cross. And one of the things that you, you probably don't know about Stephanie is that um, while she has her roots in Latin America, particularly the countries of Bolivia and Mexico, she also has worked extensively in India. And much of her work has focused on water issues in the different countries where she has worked. So you're going, I think you're going to enjoy her talk as well. I think we're going to have an exciting afternoon. So welcome all of you. And now I will turn it over to Dr. Flora. It's hard to call you Dr. Flora. I'm going to turn it over to Neil. Thank you. I go by Neil. My husband's name is Jan, and that really confuses a lot of folks. But he's a tall one with a beard and bald, so so you can distinguish us. Um, I'm going to talk about what difference climate change makes for different social segments. And what I'm going to argue is, on the one hand, climate change is occurring. On the other hand, a lot of other stuff is occurring too, and some of that stuff exacerbates climate change. So that's the takeaway. There's my punchline. Um, so here's, here's what we have. We have, on the climate change, we have increased mean temperature. Now, what does increased mean temperature mean for agriculture? It means that evapotranspiration is faster. You need more water to do the same thing you did before. The amount of moisture we're finding, particularly in the Andes in Latin America, same amount of rainfall. What is different is the plants need more of it and is coming in different ways. Because of higher temperatures, we have a melting and lack of renovation in the glaciers. So what is happening, the moisture that used to fall is snow. uh, Sorry, yes, it's snow. And then form the glaciers as ice is now falling as rain. So the glaciers do not renew. And we have a real problem of water availability. I've worked in a place in Cotacachi in in, um, Ecuador for about 25 years. We've totally seen the glacier disappear there. I mean, these these are things we can see. And what it does to the water regime when you have over-allocated water means that a lot of people who used to get water don't get it anymore and huge social conflict emerges. Um, There's an increased survival of bacteria and pests. This is a particularly pretty um, uh, pest of uh, potatoes that we see here. You see this flooding um, in Argentina. This is Paraguay. Um, This is a flooded area in uh, from El Alto to La Paz in Bolivia. And we see a lot of um, plant diseases as well. So we're having these total changes in the ecosystem that have huge impacts on how people live, particularly people who live from agriculture or drink water. Um, We also see this huge increase in extreme events. So it doesn't rain when it used to. There's huge deluges, and then there's no rain and there's drought. Uh, We experienced that this year in Iowa, as a matter of fact, spring floods, summer drought. Um, You have freezes, particularly freezes at key times in the reproductive cycle for both plants and animals. Hail can wipe out a grain crop really easily. But on the other hand, we have a lot of other events 
that are also making a difference. We have globalization. I'm going to particularly talk about financialization in a minute. We have earthquakes because one of the sites we're studying is the Dominican Republic. Earthquake didn't happen there, but refugees came from Haiti. This had huge impacts on the DR. You will be pleased to note that the Dominican Republic had passed a law that said we will not grant citizenship to people, particularly from Haiti, born in our country. There was huge international protest, and today they have said, no, we will grant them citizenship. And that is huge, and I'm very proud of the Dominican Republic for doing that. So we've seen changes in that. So, so this globalization has sort of upset the polity. Changes in land use, changes in distribution of wealth and income. In Latin America, we have fewer people who are living in abject poverty, but we have greatly increased inequality, and I'm going to explain that a little later. And we have changes in political regimes that mean huge changes in policy. So the impacts of climate change involve spatial variability in the presentation of droughts, floods, and sandstorms. Con concerns vary according to the location. So how concerned you are generally has to do with two things. One, how much are you currently being affected? And what, does you, what do you do that depends on some sort of regularity in the climate but also where you are in that system. Are you a male or female? Are you a tenant farmer or do you own the land? Are you a comunero or are you a latifundista? All of this makes a difference. And so all of these things now mean different roles. And there's increased food insecurity and there's enormous loss of assets, particularly when animals die, when crops stop functioning. And the local knowledge systems, particularly the ones that have grown up in response to that context, and often for the, I, I do a lot of work with indigenous peoples, for people who have developed their knowledge over millennia, those signals aren't working anymore. So how can you be mindful enough to create the new ones? We used to have, um, the way we used to think about environmental science, anybody here from environmental sciences? Okay, we used to believe that we just need to get the evidence. We'll give you scientific information about conditions and threats. Anybody seen the latest IPPC report? Um, and we think magically that will enter a black box and improved conditions will come out because people will automatically understand that if this is going to happen, if we keep doing what we're, what we're doing, we should change it. But lo and behold, that doesn't happen, does it? Improved conditions don't result from, the information does not lead to improved conditions. So we're very interested in that black box of what do we do it? Because it's not necessarily that I find a fact-finding, uh, I think a fact-finding committee is necessarily a bad idea. I'm really not just in, that interested in facts. And facts do not determine behavior or what is called off here, policy. My representative in Congress, some of you may have heard of him, is named Steve King. And he is a man particularly untroubled by facts. <clears throat> One of the things that we see emerging in Latin America is a new developmentalism. And this has been particularly um, uh, analyzed in Brazil. And what it means is the old developmentalism was when you had a lot of state enterprises and you had import substitution and you were really sort of working to build up tariff boundaries and having um, building uh, state-run industries, and we saw uh, this basically in the 30s and 40s. Then we had a period of neoliberalism, which was just let the market decide, and the new de de developmentalism basically says we want public-private partnerships. 
This turned out to work pretty well in Brazil, where those public-private partnerships were involved in industrialization. There are other places, and this, the literature on this is coming out of places like Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, where they say, oh, wait a minute, there's a way this is working that perhaps is not so wonderful. Because what is happening now, again, in Brazil, these were around um, uh, industrial, industrial projects, IT projects, uh, that, that, again, uh, technology stuff that seemed to work well. But now what's happening is around natural resources. And you find governments signing treaties with a whole variety of uh, transnational mining companies, petroleum companies, um, agricultural exporters. And that means that you, the government often sees the territory, and the government has territory, to the mining or agricultural to a private corporation. Now, the government gets something out of this. Remember I said poverty was reduced. What the government gets out of it is money. The, the, the mining company pays part of its profits, part of its fees, to that government. And the governments in Latin America have been very good at distributing that as subsidies to particularly poor people. Now, what they haven't done is invest in ways for them to make a living. And we're going to see that's particularly important when you take away people's agricultural land and their water for mining. Somehow, you know, it's, there's kind of like Americans. People prefer to make a living by what they produce rather than what they get from the government. So they're happy for those payments, mind you. They're very happy about them. They feel they deserve them. But still, it has not created an opportunity for indigenous economic growth. So the, 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 those payments are distributed to low-income people, but, and this is where climate change is confounded by this new developmentalism, there are a series of land grabs involved, place, displaces people from their ecosystems and their cultural connections from the, with the land. And in terms of adaptation to climate change, this is huge. And so now think about what, we, what should be the different time frames of public versus private sector. If you are a publicly held, that is to say you offer stocks that are bought and sold on the, any stock exchange around the world, you are judged on the worth of your stock and your quarterly profits. Quarterly profits. This discourages any long-term perspective, right? So we're looking at short-term profits, so the faster, the better. If you're a government, well, if you're our government, you're waiting for the next congressional election so you can win, but, so you have a two-year time perspective, but presumably government should have a longer-term perspective, particularly on things that don't make a profit, human health, ecosystem services. Um, so, so there's a role for both. But the emphasis on short-term profits can skew the kinds of things that governments usually care about. So short-term approaches tend to mine carbon from soils in favor of short-term productivity increases, um, stress immediate market responses over long-term ecological responses, disadvantaged smallholders and particularly disadvantaged biodiversity, uh, and particularly disadvantages women because women are generally have um, Pluriactivity in terms of their um, livelihood strategies, and this really slows that down. Um, and so you begin to clear land for industrial crops. 
soybeans, corn, palm oil, sugarcane. And we see this happening in very many countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so we exacerbate the ecological and social impacts of climate change, particularly for the poor. So I've mentioned this incredible impact of, of climate change. Now, this is, this picture, these pictures are all from Bolivia. This is looking down from El Alto. This is where a flood has come because they're not, the, it's from, down from these two ex-glaciers. These are two different glaciers. Both of them are disappearing. Um, water there is over-allocated. Huge social conflicts, as I mentioned, is coming from there. The water has rushed down here from El Alto. So we began a study working with the World Bank on something called the Adaptation Coalition Framework. For the, anybody a political scientist? Okay, so I won't, you, you, if you're a political scientist, we, uh, this comes from the Advocacy Coalition Framework, but if you're a government or international government, you don't like the term adequacy, it sounds political. So we call it the Adaptation Coalition Framework for our World Bank work, and it makes good sense. And it's an action research project that we did with colleagues in the Dominican Republic, Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Argentina. And we had our local partners in each of these areas. Now, perception of CC refers to climate change are mediated by contested access to place. In Latin, in Latin America, we talk a lot about territorio. This is a word that really can't be translated because it doesn't really mean territory. It is a both social and ecological construction of space and place. <clears throat> so I'm translated as place, but it's not, it's not a good translation. I ask all my Latin American colleagues who work with the term and they say, no, there isn't any good translation. So it's an important word, um, but <laughs> so what, what it means is threatened access to land. And what we're seeing, and I got a wonderful example of this today from Belize, that access to land is being threatened because people say you're causing climate change. In this, this example, the government of Mexico is saying to the, um, the Mayan population that use a moderate form of slash and burn agriculture, you can't do this, you're, you're um, destroying the forest. Well, I, Ohio State researchers went in there and looked at time photographs over time and saying, you know, that slash and burn agriculture is not destroying the forest. Now, the Mayan organization thought this, these were really wonderful findings. The Mexican government thought they were pretty stupid findings because they wanted to remove the native Mayans from that land and lease it to a mining company who would then, of course, totally destroy the forest. But, um, but this is threatening access to land, and often this is the, the reason we're saying, well, and it, we're, we'll see this in Argentina as well. So we have the uh, land grabs for natural resource speculation and row crop farming, especially soya um, in, in a lot of the plains in Latin America are doing huge amounts of displacement. And when you view climate change as simply land use change, you are, again, tend to make things worse. And there's destruction of lands from the leakage of land grab activities. Um, there are health problems from mining and petroleum extraction, huge health problems, particularly in the, place, the site we had in the Amazon, to say nothing of also what is happening in the north of Argentina. The wild foods, and which includes both plants and animals, are killed by herbicides, so those alternative livelihood strategies are destroyed. Now, there are two ways you can deal with climate change. 
And the World Bank uses, I used to call it resistance, but they're calling this coping. And I think this is a good term. And since they have more money than I do, we're going to use coping versus adaptation. And coping means that you view extreme weather events and warmer weather as temporary. You know, we've had heat waves before. We've had droughts before. You know, it, you've got to think about what the 30s did. Uh, so so you, you've got people say, no, this is just this is just cyclical. This is all it will all get better. So we can do little things, but we're not going to make any changes. And we look to build capital and technology intensive solutions. We just put a much, as my farmers would say, if we get the, just get the chemistry right, we'll solve this problem. More pests, more chemistry. These are, these are actually wheat farmers. Um, and so you keep doing what you're already doing, only more so, which is what we've done in Iowa with high corn prices. Just, we'll just keep growing corn and soybeans, mostly corn, but we'll just put it on more marginal lands. We'll uh, get, do away with our wetlands. We'll do away with our um, conservation reserve, and we'll just plant more corn. And this is often supported by state policies, which rewards such activities, and this is true in our country and in Latin America. And then the term ecological modernization. Uh, I assume you in environmental studies have worked with the term ecological modernization, which basically means this is that if you have a problem, you will in get a technology that will solve that problem. Of course, it will create a new problem, but don't worry. We have a technology. We'll come up with a technology that will solve that problem. It is very interesting to see that people have great faith in problem-solving science and no faith at all in predicting science, science that predicts. So we have a very mixed view of science in our political community, among other things. So the notion of ecological modernization becomes key in these coping strategies. Adaptation, on the other hand, is that you see the change is constant. This is happening. It's not going to go back the way it was, but it's not going to stay the same as it is now either. It builds first on internal resources to change farming systems. So you, so you work with what you have, figuring out how do we do this in a way that is responsive to these external pressures. And it seeks alliances with market, state, and civil society actors, and I'm building up to our uh, advocacy coalition approach, ad adaptation coalition approach that, that says, how do we find partners that we can figure out how we make this work? And here's a, a types of adaptation. You can adapt at the community level, and you can do it individually or collectively, and the agency or outside um, NGO can aid individuals to adapt, generally by moving, or aid communities to adapt. And these are the variety of types of adaptation that can occur, which is a lecture in itself, and I will spare you that. So we have production coping approaches, which tend to, my, I mentioned, mind uh, these, um, which I've actually already mentioned before. Um, on the other hand, we find many vulnerable populations. In our study with the World Bank, we particularly picked vulnerable populations. Most of them were rural, but we actually had a vulnerable population in the capital of the Dominican Republic. So we, we tried to have in Santo Domingo. So we had at least one very interesting urban population that was responding to this. Um, but mainly the, the, the rural populations, although increasingly in urban areas, save seed from diverse sources. That one of the ways you deal with risk is through diversity. Now, 
We have a crop insurance system that deals with risk by ensuring you don't get diverse, but never mind. Um, you do it through pluriactivity. You do a lot of other activities. You, you diversify not only what you plant, but also what you do. And we're finding, particularly in one of the areas I will discuss in the two minutes left to me, uh, in southern Argentina, the cyclical migration is, is one of the ways that this pluriactivity occurs. And you pay attention to the weather. You're mindful of what is happening. You pay a lot of attention to the weather, and then you plant according to this. So if it rains by X date, you plant Y. X plus 10, you plant W. You know, this, this, this very responsiveness, mindfulness, um, according to the weather. Now, we believe in this too. Monsanto has just bought out, I got this from the Financial Times of yesterday, one of our major data gathering, drone data gathering, data processing companies, because what they're going to do now is have access to farmers' data that can tell them exactly what to plant and when. And many farmers in Iowa are now doing this. The problem is when that system breaks down, as you notice new systems tend to do, one of the few windows they had to plant, one guy simply couldn't get into the field because nothing worked because his technology was down. So, so we're substituting commercial ex expertise. So we're basically, I would argue, de-skilling further farming. But this, this is highly skilled farming. People say, oh, this won't work. It's so knowledge intensive. Well, we have very knowledge intensive systems, but the knowledge is held by a few corporations, whereas this is knowledge that is spread out. Um, so you move to find work, you move to find water, you move to find pasture. So uh, transhumans are very important. And you have complex and diverse agricultural systems. Again, this is sort of what you've done generationally, and now you're doing it in response to adaptation. Access a wild, wide variety of, of wild foods, wild plants. This, this is true basically in, I don't think you have as many Southeast Asian migrants, particularly Hmong migrants in Ohio, perhaps as we do in Iowa and Minnesota, they still gather a great lot of their food. They fish, they hunt, but they also gather a huge number of wild plants. And boy, getting uh, morel mushrooms in Iowa, there's a lot of competition as this gathered food. Um, but they closely observe the changes in the flora and the fauna and adapt their livelihood strategies to them. So at one point, in one place in Bolivia, it was the coming of a particular bird that meant you would plant. Now, they wait for a different bird because it's now changed. But it's being that mindful so that you're really aware of what's working when. So here are the two areas we worked with in Argentina, one in Salta, one in Rio Negro. Um, uh, the first one is Tarregal in Salta province. This is a very conflicted area. And it's one where they're both a series of indigenous populations. Many people did not know there were indigenous populations in Argentina. Uh, and it is also an area of great petroleum extraction and increasingly the planting of soybeans. And so there you've got a close of it. It's in, um, and so what we have here is flooding land and landslides. Here you see some of it. Complicated by environmental and social disorganization caused by changing in land use. So you have climate change and you have this enormous land use change. You have deforestation, petroleum and natural gas extraction, and conversion of land to soybeans. And women can no longer gather food because 
everything in soybeans and what isn't soybeans is sprayed with herbicides, so it's all dead anyway. And so this huge displacement of indigenous households and crops. Um, it's very, very sensitive, precarious land tenure for indigenous small farmers, high social inequality, high unemployment, a lot of informal work, high infant mortality, high, high school dropout rates and literacy, high poverty rates, huge social dislocation, which I've already mentioned. There's, there are only temporary organizations and relatively weak indigenous groups. And minimal state presence offering only welfare assistance, no adaptation assistance, and again, a comparatively large indigenous population. And this shows the land clearing that's going on. Um, perceived changes in Tartegal that they see is increased increase in precipitation. Again, what has actually happened is no change in amount, no particular change in amount of rainfall. It's kind of like this, but it's much more intense and concentrated in short time periods. So you have this incredible washing out and this increase in temperature which has means that the water that's there is less useful. And here's some sort of, um, there, there's resistance. It says, ni una hectárea más des Monte Cerro, Greenpeace. They're everywhere, right? Um, but you see the logging, you see the flooding, you see the mechanized soybeans, another flooding, um, people trying to get organized where people actually live. Sorry. Um, and again, the flooding and the contribution of this to the of industrial agriculture. So the expansion of industrial agricultural lands results in floods and landslides. And the coping strategies are concentration of land, fewer and fewer landowners, more and more concentration for immediate exploitation. You know, if it's going to go, we want to get as much out of it as we can. Cutting forests for timber, Increasing petroleum exploration, converting smallholder mixed agriculture to largeholder monocrop GMO soybeans. And we have individual migration. And one of the, unfortunately, one of the livelihood strategies of diversification is crime and prostitution. Um, so, so this is not a very happy situation, needless to say. And individual adaptation is not working very well. It's more like coping. The Linea Sur is in Sur Rio Negrina in the Rio Negro province, and you can see this is the Linea Sur. And they have their vulnerabilities. With the, the drought increases livestock loss, and the there, there are state agencies present, which is different than in the north, because it's, when you have petroleum and large landowners, you're less likely to have state presence. There is cyclical migration to care for livestock, and in, which encourages the continuation of herding, and they view climate change as cyclical. And they adapt through political capital. So if all the sheep die this year, we'll go to the government and get more sheep. But there is land abandonment because it is very, very difficult with these dry conditions. And so you have increasing occupation by large international and landowners. Then the because the family is left for a while, the large landowners have come in, taken which has been indigenous land, and then the owners come back. And so there's huge conflict when they try to reclaim their land, and so there's some conflict um, mediation there. And regular droughts, desertification, coexistence of large and small landowners. In fact, the large landowners at one point were very important because they provided a chance to earn money during sheep shearing time. Enclosures of pastures that have stopped the transhumans because, because of the droughts in the valley, you're in the valleys in the summer and, oh, sorry, in the winter and in the mountains in the summer trying to get most pastures, 
and seasonal and continuous migration, rural, town, rural. Uh, and incipient, there are some incipient indigenous organizations, there are land grabs, and there's also huge changing in gender roles. There's poverty there as well, but there's less social contrast than there is in Tartegal. Perceived changes are severe droughts, not seen as unusual, high livestock mortality is seen as, as unusual, and on the one thing is they simply don't have enough to eat or drink. But secondly, you have a lot more things like tick-borne diseases, that animal diseases are also more rampant because of the higher temperatures. Rains as frequent and more violent, and more sandstorms on marginal land. I grew up on the desert, and sands, I hated sandstorms. I mean, they're really na nasty, ugly things, and they hurt. So a, the more they happen, the worse it gets. You see some of the housing stock there. Here are some of the transhumants. Um, taking them from the valley up into the mountains. Um, adaptive strategies there are a varying variable role of the state. And the state is much more present in Linea Sur, is trying to protect, facilitate, and mediate, and strengthen through, through diverse relations with livestock organizations. Some of the people we know there working for um, the uh, extension service are trying to help people diversify but it's very hard when you can demand to get your stock, livestock replaced and that's what happens. Uh, there, but there's increased plural activity and a lot of spatial movement. And often the people who move will be the men who go to do seasonal work, often in construction, um, and the women are then at home. So there's total reorganization of the domestic unit of production. Women are much more in charge of daily production activities as well as reproductive activities. Um, and so there's response to the losses from climate, but there's very little collectively done to adapt to it. And so this large change in the domestic unit, which I've mentioned. So our conclusions. Marginal communities are very vulnerable to climate change and the transformations of place. Transformaciones de territorio. When state agencies are present and work with local organization, adaptations can occur. In the absence of state presence and weak organizations, there is individual coping. So there is an important role for the state to help the private sector solve their problems here. And there is little data on climate change, and few, the few that exist do not co coincide with those of local residents. And so this, this, this ability to sort of link science and experience is lacking. So that to have these good science user conversations really is difficult to occur there. And climate is the cause and consequence of changes in that place. Because we've taken away, in the north, we've taken away all that, uh, all those forests. We're not absorbing carbon anymore. We're making things worse. More conclusions. The financialization of agriculture depends on built capital to resist climate change. Small scale, scale agriculture adapts to climate change by analyzing natural capital. This mindfulness of place. If you are farming 30,000 acres, you know, you're not that attuned to the different microclimates that are occurring. It draws on cultural capital. It remembers what we did, and cultural capital is often our collective responses. You increase social capital through both bridging and bonding social capital, increase human capital through new knowledge, and that knowledge is often, and this is the hard part, it is produced through sharing with scientists, not our notion that the scientists will come and tell you what's going on. 
And finally, women are critical in terms of impact of climate change because they're hit often, more often, because of their activities are most often hit, water, for example. And they're also critical in terms of adaptation to it. We actually have a couple more minutes, so if there's something that you wanted to say and you jumped over it, well, I'm going to give you an interesting ecological fact that I just learned about how we began changing the ecosystem in Latin America. As you all remember, 1492, uh, the Spanish came, and you're bringing a lot of poor people who came from farming backgrounds who were part of the conquistadores, and they're given land. They're given large pieces of land. And what happens when you move from one farming system to another is you replicate what you did at home. So what you grew in Spain was wheat, and you had horses, and you had cows, and you had sheep. Now, the ecosystem of most of Latin America did not evolve with large, hooved, hard-hooved animals. It evolved with ruminants, but alpaca, llama, um, Vicuña all have very soft hooves. They are very gentle on fragile soils. Cows are not, nor are horses. And even sheep, though they have little hooves, they also have very sharp hooves. So you're beginning transforming the soil. The other thing that happened when you, were, when potato, you have a potato-based culture, as we did throughout much of Latin America, you can feed people on about one quarter of the land you need to feed them with wheat. So by changing to a wheat-based system, you've increased the amount of land that must be broken for cultivation. So you have drastically changed the ecosystem at the time of the conquest. And then we came in with um, our ways of helping poor farmers by bringing in our improved crops and our improved animals. You know what we've been breeding for in the United States? for a good 50 years, we've, and the Green Revolution personifies this, input responsiveness. We want breeds of animals that respond to high-protein diets, and by the way, if they're in confinement, a lot of antibiotics, uh, and we want our crops to respond to high levels of water and high levels of nutrients, and of course, if you have large monocultures, you're going to have a lot of pests, so they have to respond to a lot of pesticides as well. So, so we introduce something that is, in a whole variety of ways, very foreign. Not, not just foreign as external, but very maladapted to the context in which it went. So couple this with climate change. Couple this when you want people who are aware of their environment, who can look internally for answers, and we have... very much and uh, thank you also Kathy very much for the invitation and I'm really pleased to be here and also to um, be presenting with Cornelia Butler Flora whose work I've read over the years and uh, so I'm going to present today about Sonora which is right across from uh, what is now my home which is Arizona in uh, Tucson Arizona 
And uh, so um, I'm going to be talking about two communities in Sonora, one which is located right close to that international border, which is near Magdalena, Sonora, which some of you may have heard of, and it's right off of the international highway, and another which is very um, remote, and that is closer to Hermosillo, which is the capital city of Sonora. So climate water impacts and adaptation strategies of women in two riparian communities of Sonora, Mexico. So uh, riparian, which um, some of you may not be familiar with that term, it just means close to a river, uh, landscapes offer critical uh, livelihood, basically sustenance, as well as, of course, ecosystem services um, from fresh water. And women and men in rural communities in northwest Mexico, but of course around the world, uh, who live along rivers depend on the natural resource-based livelihood activities enabled, in this case, um, by these very harsh environment uh, riparian area oases. So um, in the midst of um, desert conditions, you have this greenery enabled by these rivers. Riparian areas uh, have experienced alterations in vegetation uh, and water resources due mainly to, of course, humans' use of this river water, uh, but also, of course, by climate change, and I'll be talking about both today. So in the next 30 years, these are the grand challenges, right? Uh, accessible freshwater runoff on the earth is unlikely to increase by more than maybe 10% uh, while the Earth's population is expected to grow by 33%. And in order to feed this population, we're going to need about 50% more food and 30% more water by very soon from now, 2030. And climate variability, of course, um, will exacerbate food and water security. So let's talk about Sonora. So Sonora occupies about 9.4% of the land of Mexico, but it generates only 4% of surface water flows. So now you begin to see the problem. Um, so other states in Mexico have a lot more water than Sonora does, but it's among the top five producers of agriculture in Mexico. And it's second in Mexico only to Sinaloa in terms of the percentage of its land under irrigation, partly because of this lack of surface water flow, rainfall. Now, um, there are many, many hectares of land under irrigation, uh, and it's 11% of Mexico's total land, uh, irrigated land. So this is the area that I'm talking about. It's closer to the border, um, that is, San Ignacio is to Nogales, which is the border city. There's Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora. And San Ignacio is near uh, the small city, you would call it, of Magdalena, and then uh, off of the International Highway. And it's located right um, on the border of this expanding Sonoran Desert. Okay? And Rayon is also located 
uh, along the border, western, eastern sort of uh, border of the Sonoran Desert. And it's located in a valley, uh, which is about two hours from the capital city of Hermosillo. In San Ignacio, uh, it's located along the Magdalena River. Uh, it's one of the main rivers of Sonora. There's seven major rivers in Sonora. It's an ephemeral river, as many are, unfortunately. It does not flow throughout the year. Why? Because it's uh, used upstream for the city uh, of Nogales. So there are urban, uh, you know, there are rural to urban diversions of water taking place uh, as it occurs in so many areas, and rural areas are hurt by that. Um, and there's also groundwater pumping uh, along the river so that these wells are located near the river. Uh, and so in San Ignacio, then, uh, the river water is not used directly. Instead, wells are placed near the river and water is pumped for irrigation there. Spring water is also used because there are numerous springs there, and it's linked to the river hydrologically because the levels in the river depend, and um, the spring water levels are dependent on that and are dependent on rainfall. Wells are also linked to river water levels, and uh, the groundwater um, levels are in decline due to uh, over-pumping not only for agriculture, but also for uh, diversions to cities. And uh, Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora especially, are growing in size. So uh, the next community, Rayon, Sonora, is also located on a river, and it's a tributary uh, of the uh, main river in Sonora, which is the, Son the Sonora River. Uh, and San Miguel River is uh, also ephemeral. It only uh, flows um, during the rainy season, which is two times a year, uh, during the monsoons and during the winter rains. I'll talk to you a little bit more about the monsoons. Um, and uh, there are uh, wells, um, like in San Ignacio, they're operated as a group, so you have um, well societies that are you know, basically used um, to, in part, to divide up the costs of um, pumping and well maintenance and also deepening these wells. Um, okay, so this is where the uh, Magdalena River is, the Rio Magdalena is um, closer to the border, and then uh, you see Hermosillo. Um, the Hermosillo is right along the um, Sonoran River. And the Sonoran River is also diverted. Um, and, and the San Miguel is affected by that um, to um, provide water for the growing city of Hermosillo. Okay, so farming then in Sonora is dependent on rainfall, um, but not directly. Uh, instead, Farming uses, as I said, all of these different sources of water. And it's all linked hydrologically. So the amount of water you find in the springs will depend on how much it rains. And um, the springs are located close to the rivers. Changes um, that are occurring in rainfall um, 
are significant. Um, usually the, the mean annual precipitation has been 400 to 500 millimeters in the San Miguel River um, sub-watershed. And um, as I mentioned before, the, the North American monsoon, as we call it, provides actually up to 70% of Northwest Mexico's and U.S. Southwest annual rainfall. So it's a very important event. It occurs in July and August. And it was something very familiar to me because I had worked in India, where we also have a monsoon. Um, but monsoon rains water crops and rangelands for approximately 20 million people. Uh, along the border, uh, in, on both sides of the border. A study uh, that is forthcoming predicts that in the future, unfortunately, this very critical monsoon will arrive later. Okay. Why? Because uh, rising temperatures uh, will mean that the soils are more... Um, are drier, do not hold as much moisture, and so it will take till the uh, Pacific winds come and bring in moisture to uh, lead to enough um, moisture in the air to in the atmosphere to lead to rainfall. So uh, these two uh, you know, images uh, by Vivoni et al. show uh, that. Um, that's pre-monsoon in June and post-monsoon in September. It shows um, that during the North American monsoon that it leads to a strong vegetation response. And also, you can see that uh, a lot of this is located along rivers. Um, so the darkest green areas is um, in um, riparian areas. So this is showing how critical this um, monsoon is to greening of this area, and it's very important also for agriculture. However, we've been in a multi-year drought in um, the northwest Mexico and also southwest U.S., and this shows in Nogales um, where uh, they have a station, um, multi-year drought, where we've been below average rainfall. So what I looked at in San Ignacio, and I've been doing research there since 2007, um, is gendered spaces of production and processing and how these are being uh, uh, basically affected by climate change. So I looked at the home compound, the solar, as it's called, and I also looked at home production um, of uh, canned and candied um, fruits and pickled vegetables. So I looked at the agricultural production going on in these home compounds where they grow um, these different fruits and sometimes even vegetables. Um, but I also looked at what do they do with those products, so the production of these into these goods. And it's not the only locus of agricultural production. There are larger orchards in these communities, but where women are more involved is right close to the home and in some people call them kitchen gardens. And so I looked at that and um, I noticed that uh, 
it was a way for one thing for women to combine several different activities, right? They could be cooking uh, the afternoon meal and also irrigating, for example, right? Or taking care of children and also, um, you know, cutting trees, that kind of thing, uh, harvesting even. Um, and it was also a way of getting other family members to be involved in this production. These are the types of things that they produce. So they produce quince paste, um, quince jelly. Some of you might have had guava jelly, right? It's very similar. So they make it into these hard blocks that you cut, right? And uh, then they also have canned peaches, canned quince, quince jelly, um, fig jam uh, that they produce. And some of it is sold right from their homes. So they just put up a sign and their neighbors know to come there. And even from Magdalena, they'll, they'll come there from the nearest city. And they also, if they have a label and if they're a larger production um, facility or, you know, enterprise, then they will sell it in, um, and they need government permission and, and it's a whole process to get this label, um, etiqueta, you know, on their quince jelly, then they can sell to supermarkets. They also sell to vendors who come to their homes and then these vendors sell along the international highway. So anybody who's been on that international highway will have seen these stands where they're selling these products. So um, these are some of the other products that they um, also pickled vegetables. Uh, and they're not only important as income generators, but they are the kind of glue that holds together families. Because migrants who come back, they eat these products. And they're also given these products to take back with them. So um, they're also a way, of course, in terms of social glue, of um, involving family members in the production of these, um, you know, different kinds of, uh, you know, products. And sometimes, you know, like an elderly um, parent will come from Magdalena and come back to San Ignacio and help with the production. Or a migrant relative might give the jars to um, his mother uh, to produce these because he works in Walmart in Nogales and he gets them for a discounted rate there. Okay, so these kinds of arrangements, even cross-border arrangements, um, uh, show that it's really not only about income production, but also about this kind of social glue. However, this production is uh, being challenged um, by climate change. And um, so when we look at the effects of climate change, we have to look at um, why is it important to look by gender at what people know um, about in agricultural production and processing. Um, well, one of the things I use is a feminist political ecology approach to do that. And um, it places importance on the different types of knowledge possessed and transmitted also by different social actors. The social, i.e. gender, age, ethnicity, and race, and physical locations of these actors are all examined to gain a better understanding of how these social positionings 
influence knowledge and the ability to use this knowledge to gain political voice and decision-making power in general. Now, post-harvest processing stages of agricultural development rarely figure into agricultural policies. And so um, I look then at you know, this post-harvest process and look at it um, in terms of gendered knowledge, but I also look at um, agricultural production itself that takes place in home compounds um, as uh, something that needs to be looked at from a gender lens, but also from the perspective of that it's something that contributes to food production and income. So what's happening uh, in terms of climate change is that uh, there's a growing depletion of water, surface water in the river, but also importantly in these springs that are near the river and are linked again hydrologically to the river. Um, and that's where they irrigate from is these springs. They channel it into canals and then use it to irrigate their orchards. In the home compounds, what they tend to use is tap water. But where does that tap water come from? Well, that's a well near a river, okay? And they've had to deepen their well. In, in the paper, you can see that they've had to deepen their wells by about 130 feet recently in the last six months, okay? So this means this drawdown of water resources is really affecting um, production in not only in the fields, but also in these home, home compounds. Um, so what are women doing then? Um, well, they're doing a number of different things to respond to this crisis. They're reintroducing tree species such as plums in home compounds as an experiment. These were wiped out less than 10 years ago due to a pest. And as we know, with climate change, pests can wreak more heart, um, damage because the plant or tree in this case is weakened already due to higher temperatures, less rainfall, right? it's weaker. So any pest that comes through, it can literally wipe it out. And that's what happened with plum production. They produced four different types in this region. It was wiped out in about three years. Okay, so, but the women decided that Let's try. Enough years have passed. Let's try in our home compounds to reintroduce plums. Let's see what happens. And the men were skeptical, but very interested, looking to see. It takes a while, three years, for the fruits to start, you know, uh, and uh, coming onto the trees. And so this summer, uh, the uh, plum trees began to produce their first fruits, and the women were, um, you know, uh, cheering and the men were interested and, and thinking, well, you know, still there's very small production. Let's see what happens next year. But you might see then the reintroduction of plums into this region. Now, what had happened before is they adapted by producing more quince jelly when the plums were um, wiped out. So there are these kinds of adaptive processes, right, that are not necessarily linear. And women are trying to maintain a diversity of, of agricultural uh, crops in the area. Um, so the other thing that they do is they purchase inputs like olives and quince 
from communities in the region that maybe weren't affected by some of the pests that were you know, affecting their region. They alter water sources and water storage methods. So let me give you an example of one woman who uh, irrigates her land um, right in her home compound with tap water. And so what she did was uh, she uh, grew a variety of different like cilantro, um, chilies, uh, green beans to be able to make this pickled vegetable um, the product. Okay, so and she also runs a small nursery in this same very small home compound. Um, so what she did was she has an overhead tank that she's had on there for about 60 years on her roof and she stores the tap water there so that she has enough tap water to be able to irrigate her home compound. Well, what happened was that there was a strong freeze this last winter. So she, um, the tank basically um, got damaged, so she could no longer use it. So she had to then enter into an agreement with her neighbor who has a well to um, carry water to her home compound and then um, with buckets, then they, um, she and her husband irrigated the home compound um, crops. So what she decided to do then is um, basically, uh, you know, um, next year, um, only after fixing the tank, which is um, an economic difficulty for this couple, uh, to only store water in the warmer months in that tank. Again, this tank has been on the um, rooftop for um, for 50 years, okay? But this is an adaptive strategy that they're going to have to do. They also had to replant all of their crops and the saplings because all died this summer because there wasn't enough rainfall. And they didn't have the extra water in their tank and they didn't have enough water coming from their neighbor. Okay, so... Um, that's just one example, and they're also diversifying their in income sources. So Rosa, for example, also sells candies that um, her son gets for her um, in Costco in Tucson. And then she sells them by the piece. Okay, let's focus now on Rayon and cheese production. So... Uh, moving to Rayon, we see, on, again, located on the San Miguel River. Um, women make two types of cheeses, but one is uh, commercialized, marketed. Uh, that is uh, the queso cocido or um, cooked cheese. And uh, they make it, again, with family members. And again, it's very important in social networks because migrants who come back, um, one woman told me uh, who's a migrant and was visiting, um, if I go to Rayon and I don't eat cheese, it's as if I haven't even been to Rayon. <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, the importance of cheese can't be overestimated. They have it in uh, quesadillas mainly and they, um, 
in any fiesta or uh, any holiday, they um, basically sit around and eat quesadillas and also, of course, um, barbecues. Um, so this is how it's produced in their homes, um, usually right in their homes. Sometimes they'll have an extra room right next to their home. Uh, and uh, these are the small stoves that they have um, with gas, run by gas, and, and then they're put into these small buckets uh, or um, pails, um, and then they're stored um, in freezers. Now, the cheese culture is sensitive to weather. It will get killed. It's a bacteria, so it gets killed in very cold or very hot temperatures. And so what they're doing is, because of more extreme climate, they um, are experiencing this die-off of their culture more frequently. So they do um, share the culture between friends and especially relatives. So one woman said, yeah, I just go to my, my sister-in-law and she will um, lend me some culture. She will give me some culture if mine dies. But as the problem became more severe, with more severe oh. weather, um, they've begun to add citric acid which helps to also acidify the cheese and helps to um, combat this problem, mitigate the problem of this culture that is dying. Um, so um, some similarities is that uh, their collaborations between family members, the farming and ranching in larger land parcels is overseen by uh, male household members. Um, but um, one difference is that agricultural production um, is taking place in uh, Rayon, not within the home compound. So it's taking place, though, in irrigated land, rain-fed land, and also in the Monte, which is the, the um, wilds, you know, wild lands, if you can call it, around the community. And um, it is there that you're finding also the impact of climate change. And that's really not been the focus, again, of any um, government policies or programs or nonprofit organizations. And that's similar to what Neil was saying, is that, you know, wild foods, you know, whether it's for cattle or whether it's for people, are not really considered to be agriculture. They're not considered to be part of the whole livelihood system, but they're very important. And what's happening is with the winters becoming colder, they're having um, unprecedented freezes of these wild plants and animals, uh, well, plants, especially in trees, that the cattle are feeding on in the monte. And so this is affecting dairy production, okay, because this is what the animals eat for that part of the year where they're in the monte, okay? So again, it's these spaces of production that are not included in government um, policies or programs, but that are being impacted by climate change and that are then impacting agricultural processing activities, in this case, cheese. There's also a decline in the linked groundwater and surface water um, sources. So in uh, Rayon, I was luckily there when they were deepening the well, and everybody was very glad because they were getting, um, you know, 
water cuts in their homes. Uh, and this was in May of this year. Uh, and um, so I asked the engineer who uh, was actually staying in the same hotel, I said, so how um, much deeper is this well than the one before that it's replacing um, for drinking water? Um, and he said it's 130 feet deeper. Okay. So that's significant, and it's a drilled well, um, not a dug well, and so you need more power, of course, to um, you know pump that water up, right? And it also points to, and this is why I like using ecological systems um, frameworks, is it's pointing to possible ecological tipping points in terms of groundwater use. How much deeper can you really drill? drill and still have it be economically feasible to engage in this, you know, production. Now, one of the things that the women are doing is that they're buying milk from elsewhere. Since with all of this going on, um, the, uh, you know, people are either, you know, decreasing herd size or they're getting out of farming altogether. Um, they still need milk for these productive enterprises like cheese production. And so what they're doing is they are um, purchasing milk, but from quite far away, from uh, as far away as, as Garibó, which is in the, um, it's on a very bad road, um, 45 minutes away. And this, of course, implies uh, gasoline costs, which many are complaining about, uh, and time uh, of family members. It's either the women themselves or maybe a son or daughter that might go uh, to get the milk. Um, but it's a way of kind of separating agricultural production and processing um, that they're engaging in. Um, and uh, so let me just read you, how many more minutes do I have, by the way? You actually have seven more minutes. Seven more minutes, perfect. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, let me introduce you to Silvia. Uh, Silvia is a woman who um, is uh, someone who, who's a real go-getter, and she produces the most cheese um, in the community. She's even gotten her own label, which is, has her name on it. Um, she's been recognized not only within Sonora, but in the whole of Northwest Mexico for her cheese, um, in a government kind of um, promotion of cheese. Um, she has also obtained funding from a government program, Alianza para el Campo, to purchase burners to be able to produce more cheese at a time, and freezers to be able to store more cheese before selling it. Um, she received assistance to build an additional room that's connected to her house to produce the cheese. And for both grants, she received um, half of the cost of labor and materials. She explains how she got the chief of the irrigation district who was attending a meeting in the municipal office in Rayon to come to her house and look at the space that she used for cheese production to show him that she produced a large volume of cheese and needed the equipment and extra space necessary to be able to expand her business, she explained. He was in the meeting, and I grabbed him and I pulled him to my house to show him that my production was large. 
She noted that the percentage that the government gives now has been greatly reduced. So um, she also um, innovates by adding different flavors to the cheese, and she proudly says that she was the first one to do that in Dion and that other people have now started to doing that to do that too. She has um, other ideas about what to do with her business, and one of them is that she wants to reduce her energy costs. And she said that there was a government program, uh, and one man came to her business, and it was to provide 50% um, to install solar panels. But she said the government officials did not return here. They only finally decided to provide them for communities in Sonora and the mountains where there is no electricity. Studies on gender and climate change have shown that women are more receptive to green energy sources and as such can act as climate change uh, mitigation forces. So um, that's uh, Sylvia and it um, points to um, some of the things that um, women have done. They, um, she buys her a lot of her milk in Garabal. Why? Because the well that they had, uh, she and her husband, um, it uh, no longer provides them with any water. So it was not deep enough, and they didn't have the money to deepen it. It's, it's hugely costly. Uh, it's about almost $8,000 to deepen a well. Okay. So, um, so they no longer have irrigated agriculture. So what they do is they let their, um, the few cows that they have remaining out in the monte, but they also let them out in the um, rain-fed lands, which are grown with buffalo grass, which is an introduced species. Uh, I can see some nodding heads. Um, and that has been considered to be a scourge because with climate change, it does very well. Um, it loves that dry weather and um, it spreads. And unfortunately, it can um, actually uh, you know, take over. It's an invasive species. Um, but it does very well for feed, and that's why people continue to um, cultivate it, um, and it, it can withstand um, very dry conditions. But even the buffalo grass has been affected by the frost, and so it grows much more slowly, the ranchers are saying. Um, now... The other thing that um, the women have been doing is they've been doing increasingly creative and modernized marketing. So this woman that I just explained to you about, she now uses the internet to get um, orders. So this is very recent. And so um, she get, takes orders ahead of time um, from her clients in Hermosillo, but also in Garbo. Also, people just um, knowing that they're going to visit um, Rayon, they, she told me, next time you come, Stephanie, you just send me an email and I'll um, have that um, cheese that you like with mushrooms. Okay? So... Um, the other thing is that they're just putting the cheese on buses that then takes it to um, Hermosillo so they don't have to go themselves to Hermosillo, uh, the capital city. And then they have somebody, and sometimes it's a relative, a migrant relative, pick that cheese up and then they sell it. Okay, And sometimes they're just vendors who they have this contractual arrangement with. 
Um, so that's another method that they've tried to broaden the regional scope of their marketing. Um, they try to procure government assistance for production expansion, and in the paper I talk about that they have been more successful than um, the women in San Ignacio at getting government assistance. But all have said that government assistance is actually, there's less of it, and what you get is actually less now and livelihood diversification. So um, one of the main things that they're trying to do is educate their children to a much higher degree than they were uh, educated. And But this in Rayon has meant this brain drain towards Hermosillo. And um, it has also meant that uh, this kind of um, processing is not being passed on to the next generation. Just when um, we need... Uh, more food to feed uh, more people on this earth. So um, we need to, you know, connect the dots between these different production spaces um, where agricultural production is taking place. We need to connect those with agricultural processing that is taking place uh, that preserves that food in a way that, you know, um, will make it last throughout the year, for example, and feeds urban populations too, and rural populations. And um, we need to um, recognize that there is gendered knowledge um, of um, climate change effects on agriculture and also climate change effects on agricultural processing, but also adaptation strategies. And um, we may be at an ecological tipping point in terms of groundwater use. And, um, you know, there needs to be kind of a, um, stakeholder meetings across watersheds to figure out what to do about that. Because right now it's a possibility to buy milk from Garabal. But what happens when those wells are depleted, right? Um, you can't uh, go even further. For one thing, you'd have to have refrigerated trucks, which they don't have. Um, and so the viability then of agriculture and agricultural processing is at stake. And of course, this world's ability to provide food for its growing population hangs in the balance. Thank you.